Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 2. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 965. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12, into chapter 3, into verse 6. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Your word says that through your Holy Spirit you gave us life. And your word says that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, from you, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We take those verses, we take those words of yours, God, and I say, help us then through your spirit to understand all that's in the text that's going to be taught today and preached today. Empower our pastor and fill our pastor with your spirit and place your words in his mouth for your people to hear. And God, may the truth of your word be carried from us into the lost world around us, the people with whom you have brought into our lives. And may all that be done for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't mean to cause you great pain this morning, but do you remember middle school? Do you remember playing dodgeball or kickball in middle school? 
If you don't recall how the teams are chosen, let me remind you. Two athletic kids are the captains, and they begin to strategize about how to put together a winning team. Who is the biggest? Who is the fastest? Who is the strongest? Who refuses to lose? And beginning with those who are most qualified, they begin to put together what they believe is a winning team. Now, if you are among the non-captains, the group of kids being chosen, your greatest desire in the entire world at that moment is to not be picked last because you know what that means. It means no captain wanted you. It means you're stuck on their team. It means that your captain doesn't think much of your abilities and the other captain is probably telling his teammates to aim at you as the weak link. <clears throat> Middle school can be uh, such a cruel time uh, for some of you. I mean, I was never picked last. <laughs> now, there were men in Corinth, these so-called super apostles, who thought about putting together ministry teams the way a 13-year-old athlete thinks about putting together a kickball team. That basically, you need the superior, the strong, and the celebrity if you're going to be truly effective, if you're going to make a real difference. And that mindset is not far from us today, is it? In today's church culture. And yet, this is not how God goes about choosing His people. God goes into the desert to a stammering and ineloquent Moses and says, you will speak for me before Pharaoh, and you'll lead my people out of slavery. God steps into a wine press in Ophrah to a fearful, doubting Gideon and calls him to lead an army to defeat the Midianites. God looks at a line of brothers and passes over the broad-shouldered, obvious choices for king, and instead anoints the youngest, David. God raises up an all-too-young and inarticulate Jeremiah to speak his words of judgment and repentance to a nation. God looks in an orchard of sycamore fig trees and finds a shepherd, Amos, to be a prophet though he has no qualifications, and on and on the story goes. You see, when it comes to those that God brings into His family and those that God chooses to use in His work, He tends to choose the weak. He tends to choose the seemingly foolish. He tends to choose the ordinary. Paul has already said this to Corinth, not in this letter that we're studying, but in his first letter he writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. But with the rise of the super apostles in Corinth, this truth is being called into question. The whole nature of gospel ministry is under scrutiny. And so actually Paul is about to launch into a rather large section just to focus on several aspects of gospel ministry. He does a very Paul thing, and he kind of chases a rabbit trail for about the next five chapters or so. Uh, it's, it's, it's so large that many uh, scholars just call it the great digression. So you have the great commission, the great commandment, and then here in 2 Corinthians, the great digression. But it is an incredible digression. It is a wonderful digression. And for all of us who want to serve the Lord in any capacity, it is so helpful. It is up there with all the pastoral letters in its helpfulness in thinking about what it means to do ministry. So Paul along the way will talk about the what's and the why's and the how's of uh, gospel ministry. But here in the text that we just read, he talks about who. He gives us an indication of who should be doing gospel ministry. And it's not the powerful ones. It's the ordinary ones. I'm convinced that this is used to teach us that God uses ordinary Christians to do gospel work. Ordinary Christians. That's all of us. I think we'll all find encouragement here. For the stay-at-home mom who feels ill-equipped to do gospel ministry in her own home. For men and women who will wake up and go to work tomorrow and feel like ministering to co-workers is out of their league. For those who uh, think that, that actually serving your neighbors and seeking to be a gospel witness to them is some kind of advanced level of Christianity. For students who will go to their schools tomorrow and think that being a witness, a light for Jesus, is really for only a special class of people. For any of us who feel like gospel ministry is some kind of specialization in the Christian life, will be encouraged by this, I think. I found myself quite encouraged by the fact that God uses ordinary folk to do His work. And so what I want us to do is to walk through this and think about how it is that Paul describes himself, and in essence, all of us, as we would seek to do the Lord's work. First, he says that we are servants of Jesus. Now, verses 12 and 13 are uh, very autobiographical and transitional in many ways. Uh, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, you can find the record of this. Paul is in Troas for about seven days in Acts chapter 20. And in light of Paul's absence, uh, in light of Titus's absence, I mean, Paul is deeply concerned. His spirit's not at rest. So he doesn't actually stay long in Troas. He bids them farewell, and he goes on to Macedonia. And yet, in the midst of this, he's not going to complain. Do you remember what happened last week when Paul's travel plans changed? The Corinthians were all caught up in whether Paul could even be trusted or not. 
And here, Titus's travel plans apparently changed. He wasn't in Troas like Paul thought he would be to give him the report about the Corinthians. But rather than fuss about it, Paul is just going to thank God. And that's what he does. Verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. Even when plans change, even when things aren't as we expected, God is still at work. Now, this triumphal procession is a reference to a Roman practice of basically throwing a huge parade after a military victory, uh, much like the ticker tape parades that you will see championship teams doing. You know, in Nashville, come February, the Titans. Why do you laugh? That's not meant to be a joke. Uh, anyway, ticker tape parade, there are, you know, the streets are closed off and and businesses likely shut down, and players ride through town, and adoring fans are cheering them the whole way. Well, after a great military victory, the Roman general would ride on his chariot, often maybe with his sons or close companions, at the head of the line, and behind him would come his victorious army, and behind them would come the captives, those that they captured from the enemy army. And all of that, as the general rides up front, as the army comes, but especially as the captives come, the more captives there were, the greater the general is sought to be. His greatness, his strength is on display in the capturing of these enemies. But then here's the question. What's Paul trying to say? Are we the victors? Or are we the captives? Well, now, theologically, you could answer that question either way. Because according to 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Christ, God gives us the victory in Christ. So we have victory in Christ. But then you have passages like Romans 6 that tell us, we were slaves to sin, but we have been set free now to be slaves of God. We are to be His servants. In fact, that's the way that Paul most often refers to himself is as a servant of Christ. There's no doubt that Jesus is the victorious general here. However, who are we? The answer comes uh, when you actually can see the Greek language behind this English. It's very helpful. Um, this verb that we read as leads in triumphal procession this verb itself, when it is followed by a direct object, put on your English thinking caps for just a second, your grammar caps. Don't worry, we'll take it right back off in a second. Most of you shudder at the idea of grammar. But when this verb is followed by a direct object, the word, then the object of the verb is being triumphed over by the subject of the verb. Now, that's most clearly seen the only other place this word is, is used in the New Testament, which is Colossians 2, verse 15, where it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Speaking of what Christ has done on the cross, not only has He forgiven us, He has triumphed over His enemies, putting them to shame. And here in 2 Corinthians 2... This translation looks very complicated, doesn't it? Leads us in triumphal procession. But if you were to read it literally, it would say something like this. 
thanks be to God who triumphs over us in Christ. Now, I look back at my notes, and the last time I preached this was like 15 years ago, and I did not take this approach to this text, and I'm thankful the Lord continues to, to grow us. But I am actually convinced, and my, the commentaries I have for 2 Corinthians are equally divided on this. However, I believe that what Paul is saying is that we are the captives, we are the servants, we are the one Christ is leading because He has captured us. Now, within this group of captives at the backside of this processional, there'd basically be two groups, not clearly identified. There'd be those who are headed for their execution once they get where they're going. But there would be some who would receive grace from the victor. Not to be to go anywhere they want, but they would receive grace from the victor to be freed from the sentence of execution and to become his servants. And that's what I believe Paul is saying. Thanks be to God who has triumphed over us. That fits with the whole tone of the letter, doesn't it? This is not a triumphant letter. This is not a rah-rah, sis-boom-bah. This is Christ. God makes His power known in weakness. How much weaker can you get than those who are captives, those who, are, who have been triumphed, those who are now servants? You see, becoming a Christian is not adding Jesus to your life. It's not getting a little religion. The Bible teaches us that we were all once enemies of God rebels against Him. And the fact is, is that God is a great conqueror. As you read the Bible, you will understand that none of God's enemies will stand in the end. No one will be victorious over Him. So as those who've rebelled against Him, we're in the crew back here that deserve execution, deserve condemnation, deserve eternal death. But because of God's love for us, the Father sent His Son to die in our place, to bear our sin, to pay our debt, to reconcile us to Him. And then He comes to us individually. And we, as those who are dead in our sins, would gladly do anything else but serve the Lord, anything else but submit to the Lord. And do you know what He does in His grace? In His glorious grace, He conquers our rebellious will. By His grace, He changes what we want. By His grace, we can no longer go any other way but the way that He leads us. Now that seems unusual to talk about the Christian life as being one that you enter by being conquered. But can I tell you that this victorious general, this powerful Jesus, is leading all His captives to life. All those who know His grace will have eternal life. And so we are servants. And this is every Christian. Paul is not alone here. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
In part, it's because God graciously came to you and said, you will not go that way anymore. You will go this way. And then you come to find, why would I ever go any other way? This is glorious. This is wonderful. Friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you to turn to Him in faith. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. And when you do, you know what you'll realize? He's won you. He conquered you. He's all now that you want. He's the only one you want to follow. You'll go anywhere that He goes because in the end, that will go home to heaven. Servants of Jesus. God uses servants of Jesus to do His work. The second thing He says about us, Paul says it about himself and his, and his group, and, and then ultimately it is referring to us, is that we are the aroma of Christ, the aroma of Jesus. Through us spreads, this is the middle of verse 14, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now these this imagery also comes from the victory parade because as the crew, as the parade begins to come into the city, incense would burn and it would fill the city with the sweet smell of victory. And so Paul has gone from saying we're the ones being led, we're the ones being triumphed over and being led in procession to now we are the aroma. All of this centers on Jesus' great victory. But we are the aroma. We're the ones filling the air. But he uses a couple of words for it. He says, we are the aroma of Jesus to God. That's what he says in verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Aroma here is a word for something that is pleasing to the senses. And it's a word that's used to describe the death of Jesus in Ephesians 5 verse 2, where Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering, that's, that, that's the word, aroma, an, offering, an aroma and sacrifice to God, like the incense that would rise from the sacrifices, like the smell, the sweet smell uh, of, of the sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice was fragrant. It pleased the Lord. And now our lives are marked by that aroma so that we are pleasing to God because the sweet, sweet benefits of His sacrifice have been applied to our lives. So we are the aroma of Christ to God. But notice, we are also the fragrance of Jesus to others. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, the word fragrance is not the same word as aroma. Fragrance is just a scent that you can pick up and smell. And so what he's saying is that as we go from our home to our work to our school to recreation, in the words that we speak and in the actions that we take, we are the fragrance of Jesus, both to Christians and to non-Christians. Now, to many of us, and, and rightly so, this calls to mind the question, 
Am I an accurate representation of the aroma of Christ as I go anywhere that I go? Am I faithfully representing the sweet smell of the gracious Lord Jesus Christ, His sweetness, His love, His mercy, His truth? Do I represent Him well? That's a question all of us should ask ourselves, but that's not Paul's focus here is to ask that question. Paul's focus is to say that as we go about, we are in fact the fragrance of Jesus. To the Christian, it's the fragrance of life. To the non-Christian, it's the fragrance of death, but it's the same fragrance. How does that work? Well, one of the things that I've come to enjoy doing in the last few months is to make pinto beans the way that my grandmother made them. You soak the beans, and then you begin to cook the beans, and you put a little beef bouillon, a little bacon grease, which never hurt anything, a little, a little salt, and a little patience. It takes a couple hours to get it done. And as those beans cook, the aroma of the bacon grease and the beef bouillon and all of that begins to fill the house. And I smell it, and I can't help but smile, and my mouth waters, and I'm wondering, when is it that these will be done? And when some of my children smell it, they recoil because, they do, because they're just not trained yet. They just, you know, I haven't... They're not fully done uh, getting there yet. Uh, parenting fail, you know, when pinto beans don't smell good to your children. Anyway, so, but it's the same fragrance smelled by two different people with two different desires in food, two different kinds of food they like. To one, it smells heavenly. To the other, it doesn't. What's well, much the same in the spiritual life that the fragrance of Jesus as we go about where we go about, the fragrance of Jesus of our lives will strike the souls of others differently. Because, if you will, their spiritual taste buds are set to like certain things. And the heart that is not set on Jesus will not find the fragrance of Jesus pleasing. They will not think, oh, this is the smell of life they will think this is the stench of death. And actually, I think that encourages us as we witness. You know, to, like when, when, you're, when you have a long-time conversation with someone and they've just turned up their nose at Jesus for so long, but it seems that recently they've wanted to hear a bit more. They're staying longer in the conversation. They're asking questions. Friends, you can know that the Lord is at work. And their taste buds just may be changing. And even if someone continues to turn their nose up, we have to remember, don't we, that everyone turns their nose up at Jesus until they don't. Everyone turns their nose up at Jesus until God by His Spirit comes and changes the heart. So our fragrance in the world will vary based on the heart condition of those around us. But our fragrance before God never changes. We are the aroma of Christ to God. So that no matter how rancid the world thinks Christianity is, God is pleased with us in Christ. So we can be encouraged by that. We can rest in that and we can keep serving the Lord. 
Ordinary folks are just servants of Jesus. Ordinary folks are, are the aroma of Jesus. The next thing about these ordinary folks is that they're just sincere in speaking of Jesus. Paul asks a question at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is it that meets the standards? Who's up to the task of gospel work? Now, if I just ask that question, all right, who's up for it? This week, raise your hand. Instinctively, most of us will say, uh, I'm not qualified for that. Not me. You know why? Because we have a specialization mindset when it comes to doing gospel ministry, when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to doing ministry with others. This is why sometimes, you know, I'll get a request, and I don't mind doing it, a request from a Christian that I would go visit their non-Christian relative in the hospital. Because I can actually share the gospel with them. And while I love to share the gospel with people who don't believe, the fact is, the relative who is a believer can do the exact same thing that I would do, say the exact same thing that I would say. Who is sufficient for these things? It's a good question, isn't it? Don't you wish Paul would answer it? He does answer it in the very next verse. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. <clears throat> Did you catch it? First he asks, who is sufficient? And then he immediately defends his integrity in handling God's Word. In other words, in that very answer, Paul claims sufficiency for himself and for his co-workers. Why? Not because they're so great, but because they're just, they have sincere motives as they speak of Jesus. That's what sufficiency looks like. It doesn't look like a particular degree hanging on your wall. It doesn't look like a hundred sessions of training. It looks like a sincere believer sharing the plain gospel with a heart for the person they're sharing with. This is what it looks like. And Paul says there are many who claim to do God's work, but they're swindlers, they're con artists, they're peddlers. This was the word in the market for one who would try to basically sell you uh, junk for a really high price. It reminds me of actually of teaching our children how to properly price things at a garage sale. Because what they'll do is they'll say, well, this little army guy, surely someone will pay $8 for that. Seems reasonable. So if I have 12 army guys, I'm going to be rich when this thing's over. Well, Paul says there are people who actually know what they're doing, and that's what they're doing. They're dishonest. They're peddlers. They're fakes. They're using underhanded means to try to promote themselves. Now, what does peddling look like today? Now, we could go for the easy fruit, couldn't we? Well, all you have to do is turn on your TV you can find the peddlers, you can find the fakes, you can find the hucksters right there. But I wonder how people who are sharing the gospel might be tempted to peddle God's Word instead of speak with sincerity. I think one way is when we would minimize biblical truths in order to try to sell the gospel to our friend, the way an unsavory car salesman might minimize the problems with a vehicle just to try and sell it 
to get it off the lot. For example, if we minimize the Bible's teaching on hell when it comes, or we apologize for it, we say, well, I don't really like this truth at all. I mean, nobody really likes this truth, but it's in the Bible, so we should probably talk about it. Now, certainly we don't get prideful in these things, but we shouldn't apologize for what God says will happen if we reject the Lord Jesus Christ. God has put it in the Word in part to reveal to us the truth, and through that often stimulates people to see the reality of where their life is headed. And when we decide we're just going to put that to the side, I'm just going to tuck it away. It's not that I don't believe it's true. I'm just not going to talk about it, or I'm just going to brush over that. We become peddlers. Or what about when your friend asks a question about biblical ethics, and you know the answer will be completely unpalatable. It will completely go against their current worldview. Well, brushing it aside and not dealing with it and not just answering honestly, we could become peddlers. What about when we avoid speaking of repentance? Because we know if we, when we talk about repentance, we're talking about there's something already wrong in my thinking and in my life. I don't want to say that to my friend. We can become peddlers. You see, if we do these kinds of things, we're dishonest, we're insincere, and we're, we're peddling a type of Christianity that actually isn't Christianity at all. And so we must refuse to peddle. Who is sufficient? Ordinary folks who have sincere hearts and share the plain gospel. That's a much different answer than if I just asked that and had everybody take a quiz, right? Who do you think is sufficient to do this kind of thing? Who do you think is sufficient to be uh, the aroma of Jesus everywhere they go? Who do you think is sufficient to be a servant of Jesus? Well, we could get all kinds of answers. But Paul tells us, well, it's those who are sincere with, with the truth. Speak it plainly. Don't peddle it. Don't promote yourself. Don't twist it so, it so somebody will take it. The fourth thing about these ordinary folks who God uses is that they're commended by Jesus. Look at verse... Uh, this is what happens as we transition to chapter 3. It's, a, it's an awful thing. This is one of those bad, you know, bad uh, chapter breaks in the Bible. Uh, this is a place where this flows right out of what he is saying in chapter 2. Paul moves on and he... He knows that claiming to be sufficient for gospel ministry makes it sound like he's tooting his own horn, like, like the other teachers in Corinth might sound. And so he wants to make it clear that he's not. So he writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, it is certainly out of order to commend yourself. Uh, back, I mean, nine years ago, and I've shown this to several of you, so you'll know what this is, uh, when we were looking for uh, an associate pastor who ended up being Chad, uh, coming out of our own congregation, 
uh, we had, you know, a job posting out there and had any number of, uh, I mean, resume, I mean, just a huge stack of resumes that we're filtering through. Well, one of them came with a PowerPoint. I thought, that's interesting. I've not seen a PowerPoint come with a resume. So I open up the PowerPoint, and on the first, uh, on the first slide is a picture of this man with his family, and uh, I don't remember his name, uh, but we'll just call him Joe. Sorry, Joe. All right, but we'll just call him Joe. Joe, Gray Road Baptist Church's next associate pastor. I will just tell you that is off-putting. If you're thinking of doing that, um, that may work in any number of places. Uh, it does not work when you're applying to be serving in ministry somewhere. So the delete button was not far from me, and I hit it. Uh, but that kind of thing, I mean, if you just open that up, it's off-putting immediately, isn't it? Even as you heard that, it was off-putting to commend yourself in that way. But a letter of commendation from someone else is something we do all the time. And it's something that was practiced there. It was a way of demonstrating one's authenticity in a place where you're not known. Paul does it himself. In Romans 16, he commends Phoebe to the church as one that they should welcome and make sure that her needs are met. It's not uncommon for me to get uh, an email or a letter from a pastor that I do know introducing to me some missionary that I don't yet know, uh, a missionary who is seeking an audience with me. And so here, rather than commend himself, Paul says, all you need, if you want to read my commendation letter, here's what you need to do. Look in the mirror. You are my commendation letter. Look at your conversion. Look at the establishing of your church. Look at the spiritual fruit in your lives. There you'll find all the proof you need that I am sincere. But he says, I didn't write the letter. Did you notice that in verse 3? You show that you are a letter from Christ. Not a letter from me. Christ has written this letter. Christ wrote the letter commending Paul. And the words aren't written in ink, not on stone like the law, but it's written on their hearts by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. In short, he's saying that the gospel fruit in your lives is Jesus' commendation letter. Now, as ordinary Christians, when we go about doing the work of ministry, there are times that Jesus will commend what we do by showing us the fruit of our work in other people's lives the fruit of the Spirit, or uses some hard conversation to bring repentance or renewed love for Jesus, or when that friend is in the midst of suffering, after you, the Lord uses you to speak into their lives and there is increased hope in the midst of that suffering, or there is encouragement. On Thursday, Susan and I moved Caleb in, uh, moved Caleb to Muncie so he could start school. And as I look at who Caleb is now, and as I look at the work of the Spirit in his life, the fruit of the gospel in his life, I think of many of you. I think of you, Stephen, and the hours that you poured into my son. I think of Isaiah Helms, who is not here. He has to work 
uh, beginning at about 11 every Sunday morning. But I think about the fact that for five years, Isaiah worked with Caleb on leading that youth band and invested in him. I think about Josh Stacy, who's not here, but whose generosity and whose radical conversion to Christ was used by God to influence Caleb. I think about Tom Blackburn. I think about the fact that here's my teenage son coming home from an elective class just fired up about what he's learning there. I think about you, Dawn, and your family's investment in my son. I mean, I just look across the room and I think of how Christ's letter of commendation in so many of your lives will include a reference to Caleb. Now, we don't always get to see the fruit of our work, but when we get a glimpse of it, it's like a little commendation from the Lord, isn't it? Telling us that we're doing the right work, encouraging us to keep going. And even if you don't see it so much here, there will be commendation in the end. For all who faithfully serve and wonder where is the fruit of this? Where is the fruit of this? Dr. Martin, who you saw on the video, he talks about this chart of, you know, uh, the work and the influence of mission work, and he talks about how for a long line, if you just watch the, uh, watch the line of growth, it looks like nothing's happening for years and sometimes decades. And then maybe even beyond that missionary's investment in that work, the Lord uses it. And believe me, whether you see it or you don't see it, if you are a servant of Jesus, the aroma of Christ, seeking to sincerely serve Him in all you do, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The last thing. We ordinary folks are strengthened by God. Paul wants to make it very clear that when he says Jesus has written his commendation letter in their hearts, he is not patting himself on the back. He is not saying, look what I did. He says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's God who commissioned Paul. You remember? It was God who said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. It was God who sent him among the Gentiles. It is God who has made him sufficient for the ministry he's doing, this ministry of the new covenant, a covenant that doesn't hinge on works of the law, the letter. If that were the case, it says the letter kills. The only result of that is death. No, this new covenant in Christ is established in Jesus' blood, and it hinges on the work of the Spirit, giving us a new heart, giving us a new life, which makes it clear that Paul can't take credit for anything that's happened. This is the work of the Spirit. God has sent him. God has empowered him. And now the Spirit of God is making things happen. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, knew, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He, he can't even take credit for how hard he's working. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And then in Colossians 1, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is very aware that as he goes about doing ministry for God, he only does so because he's been strengthened by God. That's the only way you'll accomplish any ministry. Did you know that? You can do a whole lot of whole lot of, but you're not going to accomplish a single thing. And in fact, without knowing and relying on the strength of God to help us, quite frankly, that's when a lot of people just throw in the towel. I've had enough of this. I'm done. You see, there are times when we do work harder than everybody else, like Paul said. There are times that we do give more time or more energy or more effort or more blood, sweat, and tears to whatever ministry it is. And the wrong way to respond to that, the wrong way to speak about that is to boast in yourself. Now, nobody usually goes around bragging about themselves. It, you, that boasting usually takes the form of complaint. I had to do this all by myself. Nobody helped me. I just had to get it done, so I got it done. Or we can realize that the only way I did any of it was by the strength of God and thank Him for it and leave the lack of participation from others to the Lord to sort out. Because any time we give ourselves to ministry, any time we sacrifice, any time we give ourselves for the sake of God's work, it's because God has made us sufficient. It's because God has made us equal to the task. It's because God has strengthened us. And friends, He does this for every Christian who seeks to serve Him. Every Christian. Now think back to those I mentioned earlier. Stay-at-home mom. The man or the woman who will go to an office tomorrow, to the workplace. The student at school. Us with our neighbors. Anyone who feels that doing ministry belongs to a special class of people. It is good to know and good to remember God uses ordinary people servants of Jesus, who are the aroma of Jesus, sincerely seeking to speak of Jesus, being strengthened by Jesus. These are the folks, the ordinary folks that God uses to do gospel works, and these are the ones who are commended by Jesus. Do you know what that means? He can use you this week. He can use you this week. Who knows what He might do through ordinary folks like us if we give ourselves 
day by day to speaking for Him and to serving others for His glory. God uses ordinary people to do gospel work. Don't be fooled. We're going to pray. We're going to go from this place. And each one of us is therefore commissioned as an ordinary person to do gospel work this week. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You thankful that You choose the weak things to shame the strong. We thank You that You choose the foolish things